I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Simon, for, for asking me. Um, I know Simon introduced me, but just to give a little background about myself. Um, my name's Jason. If you're, if you're wondering what I'm doing up here speaking, your guess is as good as mine. Seriously, I don't know. Um, Seth asked me to cover for him one time a few years ago. He was out of town or something. And I've been stuck ever since. Um, can't get out of it. And so I'm not a, I'm not a pastor. I'm not in full-time ministry at all. I'm, um, like Simon said, I'm a, I'm a woodworker by trade. I have a small shop outside of Albany. So I do that full-time. And then my wife and I also have a, a textile printing company. So kind of two random jobs, but keeps us busy. I used to say that it was the, the businesses alone that took up all of our free time. And then, um, then we went and had a baby boy. So now it's definitely our two-year-old that takes up all of our free time. Um, and he's nice enough to let us work occasionally when we can. So yeah, that's a lot of fun. And then on top of that, I get to a, I get a speak at church every once in a while and get to speak to you guys. So this morning, it works out really well. We're going to be continuing through this whole book of Acts. We're going through Acts and Corvallis um, at the same time. So we'll just jump right in here. If you have your Bibles or your smartphones, we're going to be in Acts 20 this morning. So you can open up to there. Now, I was reading through Acts 20 a few weeks ago, I was trying to figure out, you know, kind of what direction I wanted to go in, what, what I wanted to speak to you guys about, and as I was reading through, there's one story in particular in chapter 20 that just kept standing out to me. And it didn't stand out because it was like super spiritually convicting or I had some big like aha moment, like, oh wow, this is mind blowing. It stood out because it's a really funny story. And Acts is a pretty serious book, and so you're reading through, and there's this story, at least I think it's a really funny story, and on top of it being funny, I just think it's random. I don't understand why it's even really in there. Um, so this is, the, this is the verse here. It's um, verses 7 through 12, so you can read along with me if you want. <clears throat> and excuse my voice, I've just been getting over being sick this week, so. Um, it says this, it says, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread, Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept talking until midnight. Now, there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting, and seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. <laughs> it says that. Paul talked on and on. Now, when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third-story window and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself in the young man, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again, broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Now, we know that the book of Acts is written by this guy Luke, right? But a lot of the book follows the life of this guy, Paul. And up until this point, Luke has written about Paul doing some pretty amazing things. He's written about his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, how he went from being a persecutor of Christians to being a follower of Christ. 
He writes about all the different churches that he's started and is speaking in. He writes about him being driven out of cities. He's been bitten by poisonous snakes. He's, you know, almost died a few times. He's done some pretty amazing stuff. And then we get to Acts 20, and there's this this random story in here. Now, you can kind of get the picture of what's going on. I mean, you can kind of picture it in your mind's eye. You have Paul, and he's speaking to this, this church service. That's essentially what it is, this group of people. And if you go back a few verses, you'll see that they're in the city of Troas, which is um, it's on the western coast of Turkey. It's right on the Aegean Sea. And so it's pretty warm. It's a pretty muggy environment. And you have all these people that are being packed into this upstairs, third-story room of this building. And it says the lantern light is, you know, flickering, so it's very nice mood lighting. It's getting dark. Paul's talking on and on. And then you have this young guy, Eutychus, and he finds this nice, comfortable seat in an open window. I mean, how can you blame him? It sounds like a nice place to sit, right? It's probably a little cooler next to the window than the rest of the room. And so he settles in, and he just gets super comfortable. We all know if you find a comfortable place to sit in a warm room, it doesn't take long before you just start to get sleepy, right? And so his eyes get really heavy, and he thinks like, I'm just going to close them for a second. Just to, I'm still listening. I'm still listening. Just a second. And you got Paul over here droning on and on until after midnight. So it doesn't take long before it says he falls into a deep sleep. And then we all know what happens next because we just read the passage. Out the window he goes, down three stories, and Bam! Just like that. I mean, how embarrassing, right? (laughs) Seriously, it's bad enough to fall asleep in church, but this guy, he takes it to a whole new level. I mean, he falls out of a window. Come on. Now, luckily, if you're going to fall asleep in church, and moreover, if you're going to fall out of a window and die, Paul's a pretty handy guy to have around, right? Because he doesn't miss a beat. He runs down, throws himself on, you know, Eutychus. He prays over him, brings him back to life. No big deal. Just raising people from the dead, New Testament style, whatever. I mean, he's got it covered. It's a funny story, right? And the really funny thing is, this is what I think is hilarious. If it was me, if I was speaking to a group of people and some dude just fell out of a window, I'd be like, it's quitting time. I mean, like, let's call it a night, right? Paul, he runs down, he saves the guy, and then it says he goes back upstairs and he keeps talking until daylight. I mean, get the hint, Paul. Seriously, poor Eutychus. At least close the windows or something. I mean, come on. It's hard not to read this story and laugh. It's funny. And so I was like, what is this doing in this, in this chapter? And I was thinking about it, and the more I read over it, the more I thought, you know, I think, I do think there is something to be gleaned from this. I think there is something that we can kind of extract and and take home with us. But in order to do that, I think the best thing to do is to break the story into two parts, okay? So you have this part about Eutychus, and then you kind of have the separate part about how Paul reacts to the whole thing. So what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about Eutychus, and then we'll kind of work our way back around to, to see how Paul fits into this whole thing. Now, I feel like I can relate to Eutychus on, on a personal level. I'm, I'm a little ashamed to admit it, but I've, I've got a lot of experience sleeping in church. Um, when I was growing up, my dad was actually a Baptist pastor. And if you think it's hard to stay awake, you know, on a normal Sunday with like Simon speaking or something, imagine that you're a kid 
Sorry, Simon. Imagine that, you're a, imagine that you're a kid and every Sunday you have to go and listen to your dad speak. I mean, what kid wants to do that, right? And so I got really, really good at sleeping in church. Now, I would like to think that I'm a little better at it than this Eutychus guy, not the best church sleeper. Um, I, I got really good and I perfected what I like to call the Hibbs method of, of church sleeping, okay? And I had this down so good. Now, <clears throat> there's a couple requirements. First of all, you can't sit in the front row if you're gonna sleep in church. There's a lot of people behind you, number one, and number two, you need a barrier in front of you. Because what you have to do is you sit in your chair and you have to prop your feet up on the, on the row in front of you. Now, this is key, because that way you don't slide out of your chair once you fall asleep, okay? So you prop your feet up in the row in front of you. And this is really bad. This is what makes me a terrible Christian. The next step is you have to take your Bible and you open it up and you lay it in your lap, okay? And it's even better if you can open it up to the verse you're talking about on Sunday. That's, that's bonus points. You lay it in your lap and then you cross your arms across your chest like this, put them like deep in your armpits. Warm hands are a key to falling asleep quickly, by the way. And then you, you rest your chin on your chest like this and you just kind of slump down into this like comfortable position. This is perfect because to the casual onlooker, it just looks like you're reading your Bible. I mean, this worked so well when I was younger that people would literally come up to my parents after the service and they'd be like, man, it is so encouraging to see a kid his age just so into reading his Bible. I mean, he read it the entire service. It works really well, it's great. And so, I'm reading through this story and I get to poor Eutychus and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I did that. I fell asleep in church all the time. And it really started me thinking like, but why? Why would I always just fall asleep in church? I think it's easy to say like, oh, it was my dad. I didn't want to listen to him. I was young or whatever. But I think there's something, I think there's something more to it than that. I think the, the simple fact of the matter is I let myself get really, really comfortable in that environment. You see, when you live in a Christian home, and moreover, when your dad's a pastor, I grew up from a very early age just learning that the church is just something you do. It's just what we did on a Sunday morning. We were a Christian family, we believed in God, and so obviously we went to church every week. It was part of our routine. Nobody ever asked me if I wanted to go to church. It's just what we did. And so I got really, really good at going to church. It was very comfortable for me. I could walk into the building and I knew what I had to say, how I had to act, how I had to look in order to, to fit into that environment. It's just what we did. And maybe you can kind of relate to this in some way because we all kind of fall into our routines. And before we know it, church is just this, this habit. It's this thing that we do. We walk into a building and we raise our hands in worship because it's, it's what we do. We might take communion and listen to a few good words from the speaker, and then we, we go home, we, we go to work, we go on with our week, and then next week we, we come back and we do the whole thing over and over again. It's not that we're bad people. It's not that we're bad Christians. We still believe in God. We still read our Bible. We still pray. We go to a small group. Is it really that bad that it's just become this routine? Some people would even argue that you know, having a routine is actually good because it, it keeps us on track, it keeps us out of trouble, right? And I can, I can see there, there could be some truth to that. But the problem I see is that having a routine 
makes us very, very comfortable. And I don't think God wants us to be comfortable. I don't think God wants us to be comfortable. And I know that, that can sound kind of mean. I think, I think God wants us to actually be the opposite of comfort. And I know what you're thinking. The opposite of being comfortable is, is uncomfortable. The opposite of comfort is discomfort. Why would a kind, loving God want us to feel discomfort? Another word for discomfort is pain, right? Why would God want us to feel pain? But I think we're looking at this all wrong. I don't think the opposite of comfort is just simply discomfort. I think there's more to it than that. Think about it. When we're comfortable, we're still. When we're comfortable, we're resting, we're relaxing, we're sleeping, we're not moving. So I don't think the opposite of comfort is discomfort. I think the opposite of comfort is movement. I think the opposite of comfort is action. So when I say that I don't think God wants us to be comfortable, I'm saying I don't think God wants us to be standing still. If you look throughout the scriptures at all the people that are written about throughout the entire story of the Bible, specifically the people that God chose to like align himself with and do his work through, you'll start to notice that they all have one major thing in common. They were all taken out of relative comfort and asked to step outside of that comfort zone in order to do God's work. Praying in public took Daniel from the comfort of his own home into a denful alliance, right? Worshiping only one God took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the comfort of security to a fiery furnace. Trusting in God took Mary from the comfort of having an ideal, simple life to being an unwed, pregnant woman giving birth in a barn. Trusting in God, having faith in God, took David from, you know, shepherding sheep, having a comfortable life, to a battlefield, and then eventually a throne. Love took Jesus from the comfort and security of heaven to pain and suffering on the cross. You see, if we let ourselves get comfortable, if we let our walk with Christ just become second nature, it doesn't take long before we stop moving. It doesn't take long before we fall asleep. Now, we might not physically be sleeping like Eutychus was, but we start to spiritually sleep. Our thoughts, our growth, our productivity for Christ, it's halted because we've become so focused on staying comfortable that that's our main priority and we'll do whatever it takes to stay inside of our comfort zone, right? So how do we break this habit? How do we step outside of our comfort zone? How do we go from standing still to actually moving forward in our walks with Christ? Man, wouldn't it be amazing if there was some guy in the Bible that was like an example that we could look at, you know, of, of what this looked like maybe? If only, right? No, like I said, there's, there's two parts to this story. You have this Eutychus guy who is obviously the king of comfort in church. I mean, he was very comfortable. And then you have his polar opposite, which is Paul. Now, Paul is a guy that is so far outside of his comfort zone that I don't even think he knows what it looks like anymore. I mean, if you backtrack to when he was in his comfort zone, he wasn't even Paul, he was Saul. He was a different person. And when Paul is speaking to his church 
and Eutychus falls out of a window and dies, what does Paul do? Now you would think that if someone fell out of a window, your first instinct would be you'd run to the window and you'd look out, right? Paul doesn't run to the window because you only go to a window when you want to be an observer. You only go to a window when you want to see what's going on outside, but you don't want to leave the comfort of your own home, right? Paul doesn't go to the window. Paul goes to the door because Paul's a man of action. Paul knows that standing still accomplishes absolutely nothing. Paul goes to the door because he understands that sometime you have to stop going to church and you have to start being a church. And so he goes down and he takes action. He's the opposite of comfort. He is poised in the position of readiness. He is ready at a moment's notice to take action. I don't know about you, but when I read this story, I would much rather be a Paul than a Eutychus. My mother is retired. I know this sounds random, but I'll get somewhere with this. Um, My mother's retired, and she has gotten very, very into handguns. I know, not what you're expecting me to say, but it's true. She's gotten very into handguns. And if you knew my mother, you would think this is the most hilarious thing in the world because she's like 5'5", 100 pounds when she's wet, the sweetest, nicest, most mild-mannered person. She loves her guns, man. And she's gotten so into it that she started taking these defensive handgun classes, okay, at this tactical firearms training school in the desert outside of Las Vegas. I know, I don't, I don't understand, but these are like these crazy intense courses and they teach you all this stuff like how to shoot at bad guys when they're holding hostages and hit the bad guy and not hit the hostage and they take you through these houses and show you how to bust down doors and like clear rooms. My mom's like 65, okay? I just, it's crazy. They teach you how to reload really fast and then the instructors at this school are like these ex-military, big, beefy guys, the type of people that you would definitely want on your side during a zombie apocalypse, you know, like, it's crazy. So my mom's taking these classes, and eventually she convinces me to go down and take a class with her, right? And, you know, we gotta do what we have to do to please our moms, so. <laughs> I go down and I take this class, and it's a five-day course. And so the first half of the day, it's all the shooting and like tactical stuff. And then the last half of the day is like a lecture period. And so it's always on different topics, gun-related topics. And um, I remember there was this one lecture and the guy was talking about carrying a concealed weapon. And he says that when you're carrying a concealed weapon, you are taking on this added level of responsibility. He said, when you strap on that gun, all of a sudden you have a responsibility that is greater than yourself. Because with that gun, in any given moment, you have the potential to save other people's lives. You have the potential to save your own life, but you also have the potential to take somebody's life. And he said the only way that you can be truly responsible in carrying a gun is that you have to constantly be living at this heightened level of awareness to what's going on around you. He said you always have to be looking and prepared that something might happen. And he broke this down into three levels of alertness, okay? He said there's a red level, a yellow level, and a green level. He said it's like a stoplight. He said the the red level of alertness is when you're just completely unaware to what's going going on around you. You're, You're resting, you're relaxing, you're sleeping, you just have no clue what's happening. This isn't the level you want to be in when you're carrying a gun, right? 
The next level is the yellow level, and this is like the, the observing, ready-to-strike level. You're not moving forward, but you're prepared. You're constantly on the lookout. And he said, this is the level that you have to be in when you're carrying a gun, because that's the only way you can make a responsible decision on whether or not to shoot. You have to know what's happening in your surroundings. And then he said, the final level is the green level, and that's the go. That's like when you've decided to, to shoot, to pull the trigger. Now, I know that he was talking about shooting people, but if there's one thing I learned about handguns, it's that they directly relate to Christianity. I mean, like, <laughs> perfectly. What level would you rate your walk with God right now? What level of alertness do you think you're currently at? On a day-to-day -day basis, are you operating at a red level, yellow level, green level? I think Paul had figured out a way to live in a constant state of yellow. If you look at the New Testament and Paul's life, this is a man that was constantly on the lookout for ways that he could be used to do God's work. He was ready at a moment's notice to go from yellow to green, and it's evident in this story with Eutychus. He didn't think twice. He was out the door, and Eutychus was back on his feet. I think it's really easy to see that Eutychus was at a state of red, right? And the sad thing is, he probably went from, from red to yellow to green really fast as he was falling out of the window. But at that point, it's, it's too late. He couldn't do anything. What level would you say that you're at right now? See, if we let ourselves get too comfortable in our environment, we become unaware to the ways that God is calling us into action all around us. The only way that we can be ready to act is we have to position ourselves in a posture of readiness. We have to be aware of what's going on in our surroundings. Now, I know it's easy to read this story and think like, yeah, but this is Paul we're talking about, right? I mean, this is like a pioneer of the early church. This is a man who obviously was favored by God, right? Of course he's going to be ready. I mean, he's got all these crazy skills. Of course he's going to be able to step out and do these things. But I'm not Paul. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I'm new to this whole church thing. I've only been coming to church for, for a few weeks, what could, what could I do? I need to be taught a little bit more. I, I need someone to teach me maybe how to minister to people. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I haven't even read the Bible. I've only read a few chapters. I haven't finished the thing. I'm not equipped to do this. What I need to do is maybe, maybe join an ecclesia. Maybe I need to, to, you know, do a Bible study. Maybe I need to be discipled for, by a few people. Maybe I need to take a transformations class. Here's the crazy thing about being used to do God's work. There are absolutely no prerequisites. There are no prerequisites. If you go back a few chapters in Acts, it says, believe and you will be saved. That's it. That's all that's required for you to do God's work. He alone is all that we need. I mentioned that I'm, I'm a woodworker by trade, right? And I get asked by a lot of people, you know, how did you get your start in woodworking? How did you make this your career? And it's really funny that woodworking's my career because I haven't been doing it very long at all. I didn't grow up doing woodworking. Um, my dad was about the least handyman, you know, out there. Um, 
I wasn't around tools. I'd never built anything before. And so the way that I got into woodworking was my wife and I, we bought our first home. We didn't have a lot of furniture. And I thought like, man, it would be so fun to try and build a dining room table. Problem being, I didn't know how to build a dining room table and I didn't have any tools at all. Um, and even if I did, I wouldn't have known how to use them. <clears throat> but my father-in-law is like a master woodworker. He has this amazing, beautiful shop with just about every tool you could possibly imagine. He's built everything under the sun. I mean, he just has everything you could possibly need. But the problem was, I really didn't want to try and build my first piece of furniture ever in my father-in-law's beautiful shop in front of him. That sounds very intimidating. <laughs> I knew that he'd be watching me. I didn't want to make a bunch of mistakes and maybe cut a finger off, and that sounded terrible. And so I had this idea, right? I did what any, what any self-respecting millennial would do, and I got on YouTube. And I thought, like, I'm just going to watch a ton of how-to videos, read a bunch of DIY articles, and eventually I'm going to teach myself all the skills necessary, and I'll be able to walk into that shop with my head held high and just impress the socks off my father-in-law, like, I'm going I'm to do this thing. And my wife would make so much fun of me because I would finish one video and then I'd immediately start another one. And then I'd immediately start another one. And after each video, I still didn't feel any more comfortable. I didn't feel like I had any more skills and I was definitely not ready to go build a table. And she kept saying, why don't you just ask my dad for help? But I didn't want to, that was outside of my comfort zone. I don't want to put myself in that position. It's pathetic, I know. And eventually, I finally got over my silly pride, and I went to my father-in-law, and I said, hey, this is what I want to do. Will you please help me with this? Oh, my gosh. All of a sudden, I went from feeling like I wasn't enough to just being so happy at the skills that I was being taught from, from this person that had a source of power so much higher than myself. Where I was weak, he was strong. I didn't have to rely on my own abilities because I was in the hands of a seasoned professional. And because of that, we were able to make this beautiful table that's still sitting in my dining room today. Do you see it? Do you, do you get it? This is exactly what we do as Christians with our Father. We say, I'm not ready, I'm not good enough, I don't have what, it's what it takes, I don't want to do this yet, that's uncomfortable. But us being used to do God's work has absolutely nothing to do with our skills or our abilities. It doesn't. It has everything to do with receiving power from a source that is higher from ourselves. It doesn't matter how long you've been going to church. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian or if you're a Christian. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you've read. It doesn't matter how many books on theology you've finished because you don't have to rely on your own skills. You guys, we serve an all-powerful God. Think about that. He is all-powerful. Any skill, big or small, he has it already. Any obstacle we come up against, he has a way to get us through that. If he sends us to do something in his name, we are going to do it with his power. That's amazingly good news, right? Does that mean that we should stop going to church then? That we should stop reading our Bibles and stop studying? 
course not. There's one thing that I've learned in my short time as a Christian, it's that God loves to build on our existing skills. He loves to use the skills that we already have and the experiences that we already have for his glory. He will continue to use those things. We shouldn't stop trying to to grow and, and become more knowledgeable about him. But what it does mean, it means that our skills aren't a requirement to do his work. It means that we can stop waiting around until we're good enough because it doesn't matter if we're good enough, he is good enough. He always has been good enough and he always will be good enough. But we still have to make the decision to step outside of our comfort zone. We can't let ourselves sink into this red level of alertness and become completely blind to what he's calling us to. Grace City, Portland, you guys are a church that is at the beginning of its existence. There's something so powerful about that, right? You are part of of the beginning of a brand new church. And I know that at times it might seem like like this is a struggle. At times it might seem like like you you can think to the future and dream of simpler and easier days. Days when when things aren't going to be so hard. But I got to tell you, I look at you, and in many ways, I am envious of your situation because you are being forced to live outside of the normal comfort zone. You are being forced to daily depend on God to provide in a lot of ways. And there's something so special about that. There is an entire city outside those doors of lost and broken people. And you know what? They don't fit into our routine. They don't fit into our comfort zone. And the only way that those lost and broken people are ever going to hear the love of Christ is if we make a decision to step outside of our comfort zone and to break our routine. It's not an easy step to make. It can be uncomfortable. It can be painful. And it's not a one-time decision either. We can't decide at one point that that we're just going to live outside of our comfort zone and be set for the rest of our life. This is a decision that we have to make new every morning. We have to wake up and we have to say, today I am deciding to be alert and present in the spirit. Today I'm deciding to be on the lookout for ways that God can use me. Maybe you felt for a while that, that God is pulling you in a certain direction. Maybe there's something in your life that you've been avoiding. Maybe it's having a conversation with somebody. Maybe it's, you know, joining a new ministry at church or volunteering to serve in a certain way. Maybe it's, it's God convicting you to, to increase your monthly giving and tithe more. Whatever it is that, that you've been putting off, it's never going to be easier <laughs> but there is a God that is all-powerful that is so excited to walk that out with you. It says in Joshua that there is no place that we can go, there is no height that we can reach, that he will not be with us. He will never leave us, and he will never forsake us. We have a very, very good father. We have a very good father. Maybe you haven't made a decision yet to call him father. Maybe you're still on the fence of whether or not you want to believe this whole thing. I encourage you to step into the unknown. He will meet you there. 
Let me pray for you guys. God, we are just so thankful that we get to call you Father. Man, we so easily slip into a routine and a comfort zone, and before we know it, you've just become another part of our week, God, and I pray that, that, that we break that habit. God, I pray that you become brand new to us again, that, that we, we make a decision to not just take the easy road, but we make a decision to live in a higher level of alertness for you, God. We want to be used by you, Dad. So badly, we want to be used by you. And we're just praying that you give us the strength and the faith to step out in that, God. And we pray, we pray. Oh, we pray for the big, amazing things that you're going to do in this church, God. There is going to be so much done through these people and this body, and we are so excited and thankful to see that, that, that come to happen, God. Thank you for Grace City, Portland, and we just, God, we are so grateful for you. Your name, amen.